Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I hope this article helps us remember there was a Continental Navy. Uh, it was active. Um, and you find that the, that Nassau raid uh, and this battle, in many ways, were the, the, the learning ground. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Eric Sterner discussing a harrowing naval battle in 1776. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is friend of the show, Eric Sterner and he'll be discussing a little-studied naval battle in 1776 with major implications. Eric has been on the show, I believe, four times. He may be the uh, most tenured guest we have here on Dispatches. And he'll be discussing a naval battle that most people aren't familiar with. It's one of these classic engagements that's often overlooked involving a ship called the Glasgow. He'll also be talking about his new book set to release this summer. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Eric Sterner. Eric Sterner, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Eric, remind us about your background and talk about what you've been up to lately. Uh, well, by training and experience, I'm, I've got a background in political science and national security. I've, I've worked in and out of government, uh, performing various jobs in that field. Uh, I did get a, a chance to work on space issues, um, and that was a lot of uh, a lot of fun. I did that in government. Uh, the last the last place I did it was at NASA, uh, which was kind of a uh, a thrill of a lifetime. Uh, I've taught graduate courses in cyber power, uh, but history's in my blood, like like a lot of folks who listen to the podcast and, and read the journal. Uh, my first piece for the journal was back in 2015, and uh, I've continued continue to try to keep that up and contribute frequently and I also write for the Emerging Revolutionary War uh, online and I'm, I'm very psyched because uh, we had two books published with West Holm. The first one is Anatomy of a Massacre which came out in 2020 and the follow-up The Battle of Upper Sandusky which comes out from West Holm at the end of this month uh, or beginning of June one of those right in that time frame. So I'm really psyched about that book and looking forward to uh, uh, spreading the word about that one. Eric, you've written a number of articles for the Journal of the American Revolution before, none about a naval battle, though. So tell us, what drew your interest into this topic? Uh, well, I've always been interested in naval history. Uh, actually, one of the first articles, uh, one of the first history articles I wrote was uh, about an early 20th century strategist. Um, so kind of a small world, and that was way back in 1993. Uh, my second piece for the journal was about John Peck Rathbun. I wanted to do a profile of him. Uh, he was the naval captain of the Providence later in the war and, and 
very successful captain, unfortunately died in a British prison, so we didn't hear much about him. Uh, he was an officer aboard the Providence, which was one of the ships involved in this fight with the Glasgow. Uh, and in the course of researching that profile of him, I learned a little bit about the raid on Nassau and this battle. And I wanted to start really digging in a little bit deeper. So uh, this sort of struck me as something that we hadn't done before. And uh, that's that's what led to the article. I just started dug in and reported what I found. Eric, what was the state of the naval war in 1776? I, well, it's largely a coastal war at this point. The, the colonies still haven't declared independence. Um, so you've got this weird situation where uh, the Americans aren't quite sure what to do. Uh, the British Navy is still inadequate to the task of blockading the entire coastline. It's just not big enough. Uh, the bulk has been gathered at Boston, of course, protecting the, the Brits there. Uh, and then withdrawing uh, Howe's army uh, out of Boston and up into uh, Halifax. There's a squadron at Narragansett Bay and Newport, just in Rhode Island. Uh, and then there are various ships dispersed among a lot of the American ports to support various governors. And that includes uh, John Murray, Lord Dunmore, the governor of Virginia, who has put together this coastal force in Norfolk. Uh, and they're operating in and out of the Chesapeake Bay and, and driving the Virginians crazy because it's really putting a crimp on their um, uh, their trade, their ability to ship goods by water. Uh, the Americans are starting from scratch. Uh, George Washington has sort of famously employed ships in sort of basic privateering functions uh, almost as quickly as he became commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Uh, some colonies are even starting their own navies, and uh, there are a lot of small boat actions uh, large whaling, whaling boats type things that are moving in and out of the coasts, striking when they can, looking to pick up coastal traders and things like that. Um, the Congress has just assembled its first Navy. So we have the Continental Navy uh, sort of in parallel with the Continental Army. These ships are almost all converted merchant vessels. Uh, their armament tends to be a little bit ad hoc, mismatched. Uh, their crews are unpracticed together. Uh, they're all merchant seamen uh, who have moved into the new role, uh, and their captains tend to be merchant captains. A few of them have uh, an experience uh, in the Royal Navy. Um, many of them have experience as privateers from the Seven Years' War. Uh, but by and large, uh, these are amateurs, just like the Continental Army. But they're small. They haven't operated together. And in the spring, they're assembled. Actually, in the winter, they're assembled um, uh, basically, the mouth of Delaware Bay, they've moved down from Philadelphia and they're waiting to go to sea. Could you tell us a little bit about the Glasgow? Uh, well, it's it's kind of a minor vessel in the Royal Navy. Um, it, it's a warship, uh, designed as a warship, operated as a warship. Uh, its captain, Tyring Mao, is, is an experienced captain. The Glasgow's got uh, sports 29-pound guns. So on a broadside, it's got 10, it throws about 90 pounds of weight. Um, it's not, it's not right. It's not real clear what kind of vessel it was. I've heard it described or I've read it described as a, as a frigate and as a sloop. And the two are really incompatible. Uh, sloop tends to be a single masted ship. Uh, but 29 pound guns is a pretty substantial, uh, warship on the coast at that time operating away from the main fleet in Boston and Halifax. Uh, it's part of a squadron operating out of Newport. Um, that squadron 
changes from time to time in terms of its size. There are two uh, warships operating in it. The ones, the the big ones. And this would be the Glasgow, uh, and then the Rose. Um, generally, it's cruising the waters off Rhode Island and Long Island, um, trying to protect the British supply vessels moving along the coast and stop rebel ships from uh, preying on them, uh, which is what they're inclined to do. So that's sort of the Glasgow and its its role at that general time of the war. Eric, who was Howe and what was his mission? It's not the Howe we're probably thinking of. Uh, well, the commander, the skipper of the Glasgow, is a man named Captain Tyringham Howe. And he knew, as I can tell, no relation. Um, on March 8th, Vice Admiral Molyneux Shuldham, who is briefly in command of the British Navy in American waters, uh, sent a packet uh, ship called the Nautilus, which is a very small, fast sailor, not a lot of cargo. And he sends it south to Newport, um, carrying dispatches. Basically, he's gonna, it's going to carry uh, letters, orders, and, and correspondence from General Howe and from Admiral Shuldham uh, down to New York, and then could proceed on down to Virginia, most likely delivering a lot of things to um, uh, Governor Dunmore. Um, the Nautilus arrives uh, outside Newport on March 30th, and on April 5th, the British commander in charge of the Newport squadron, a man named Captain James Wallace on the Rose, and he tries to lead the Newport squadron to sea. And I think this speaks well of Captain Howe and his seamanship. Only the Glasgow makes it to sea. The, the weather is just a little bit too uh, challenging for the Rose, Captain Wallace's ship, and the smaller vessels with his squadron to get out into uh, the open waters. Eric, you read a lot about this in your article. Talk about the events of the night of April 5th and 6th. Sure. Uh, so the Glasgow and the American squadron on the night of April 5th and 6th are both cruising southeast of Block Island. Uh, the Americans left uh, the Delaware or the Delaware Bay uh, back in March. They went down or back in February. They ended up down in uh, uh, Nassau in the Bahamas, occupied that for about two weeks. We're sailing back and Block Island Channel was the rendezvous point. So at this point, the Americans are cruising as a squadron of about seven ships and uh, poor Captain Howe and the Glasgow are out there all by their, on their lonesome, but they don't know the Americans are around. It's a calm night, uh, flat water and a very light breeze. Uh, so ships are moving, but not particularly fast. About sometime between one and two, uh, you know, record timekeeping at sea is not an easy task. A lookout on the Andrew Doria uh, sights two sail to the east-southeast. Okay, and that those two sail are going to be the Glasgow and probably the Nautilus. At about the same time, or at least within that hour, the Glasgow sights multiple sail to the northwest, and the range is about 24 nautical miles. And this sort of reflects the the, the better seamanship of the British or the better experience of the British in recording distance um, and time. Now it's it's the middle of the night. It's dark. Neither side knows exactly uh, what the other, who the other sails are, right? Um, so they do what is standard operating procedure. Uh, they turn to close the distance, and they beat the quarters, basically battle stations, for lack of a better way to put it. 
this is standard operating procedure when you're going to approach any ship that you don't know what it is. At about 2.30 a.m., uh, Cabot, which is a very light but relatively fast-sailing ship among the Americans, finally gets within hailing distance uh, of the Glasgow. Uh, basically, you can shout uh, across the water with a, a, a small uh, uh, speaking trumpet, I guess. It's just a looks like a big funnel. Um, to amplify your voice, and it refuses to identify itself uh, when called upon by the Glasgow repeatedly to do that. And it just keeps co- closing with the Glasgow. Now, there's a reason for this. Um, the commander of the Cabot is a man named John Hopkins. He's a very young man. But the Cabot's weight of broadside is only 14 six-pound guns. So these are very light guns. And there's only seven on the side. So altogether, he's got about 24 pounds of shot on a broadside, which basically you can throw dumbbells across the water um, one at a time. So he keeps closing on the, on the, on the, uh, the Glasgow. And then a lot of things happen nearly at once. At very close range, the Cabot finally answers the hail. And it announces it's the Columbus and the Alfred, a two and a 20 gun frigate. These are the two largest ships in the American squadron. The Alfred sports 29 pound guns and then 10, six pound guns. So in theory on paper, it's a match for the Glasgow in terms of uh, the weight of shot. The Columbus carries 18, nine pounders and another 10, six pounders. So between the two of them, they've clearly got the um, Glasgow outmatched on paper, and it may be an attempt at intimidation by the Cabot, because clearly there's more than two ships in the American fleet. About the same time, this is probably somebody jumped the gun, uh, a seaman in the tops, the rigging of the Cabot, dropped a grenade on the Glasgow's deck. As soon as, as, as you know, uh, this is all happening at once, and as soon as it happens, uh, the Glasgow unleashes a broadside at very close range directly in the Cabot. This is a, this is really devastating. Uh, the Cabot fires one real quickly. As I mentioned, it's like throwing a dumbbell across the water. And then, and then the Glasgow unleashes another broadside in the Cabot. And this, again, reflects the superior training and experience of the British crew. There's Marines in the tops in the Glasgow. Again, that's the rigging, and they're firing down on the crew on top of the Cabot. And the Cabot pretty quickly shears away after probably what is its second ragged broadside. Um, so the Cabot gets the worst of this exchange very quickly, moves out of line or moves out of position. And when it, when it does that, it fouls the Androdoria. Uh, which is the original ship that had spotted things. And the Andradori is captained by uh, Captain Nicholas Biddle. Uh, Biddle is actually a Royal Navy veteran, uh, but the Andradori is even more lightly armed than the Cabot. So I think it speaks well of Captain Biddle that he's moved up this close. He's only sporting 14 four-pounders. Um, so what, you figure 14 to 28 pounds, he's also throwing dumbbells. To avoid a collision with a Cabot, Andrew Dryas shears, shears away, and the two are their faster vessels in the American squadron are immediately out of the fight for the moment. 
Alfred is the next in line. It's captained by a man named Dudley Saltonstall, uh, and it carries Isa Hopkins, who is the squadron uh, commodore, on it. Now, on paper, like I said, the Alfred and the Glasgow should be a match, but the Glasgow's a Royal Navy vessel. It's a better sailor. It's got a better crew. And Alfred has some limitations. It's firing archer limited. Uh, it's whole, remember, it's a converted merchantman, and the hull piercings for its largest guns were too close to the water, according to John Paul Jones, who was in charge of gunnery uh, on board during this during this battle. He called them fit for nothing except in a harbor or a very smooth sea. On the one hand, uh, it is a smooth sea, but you've got two ships moving and, and guns too close to the waterline. You've got a very limited field of fire on the Alfred. It's probably a slower sailor because it's how, his hull is probably fouled from time in the Bahamas. That's also, like I said, got a new crew that's not accustomed to fighting together. So as Alfred moves up, uh, it's next to Glasgow, and they're basically trading broadsides. Uh, as this is going on, Howe, uh, Captain Howe aboard the Glasgow, notices the Andrew Doria entering, re-entering the fight, uh, and he takes notice of the Columbus, which is a co- of comparable size, maneuvering between the two of them ahead of uh, Glasgow and astern. So it's probably Columbus behind and Andrew Doria ahead. What they're trying to do is, called, is a maneuver called crossing the T. If you can get your broadside across, laid across uh, either the front or the, the bow or the stern of an enemy vessel, you can fire its whole length and it can't do much to you. Uh, and it looks like a T when the two ships cross. So it's a very superior position and everybody knows it and every captain tries to do it to the other guy and avoid having it done to him. So he's got a little bit of a problem. Around this time, as this is starting to happen, he gets off a lucky shot, and it damages Alfred's steering. It shoots away uh, some of the ropes that he used to control the rudder and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the wheel. So with that, Alfred slows, starts to, to struggle a little bit, how he uses the opportunity to move ahead of the Alfred, cross in front, and basically rake the Alfred. So he's got a really good broadside off the length of the Alfred. There's not a lot Alfred the ship can do about it at this point. Now, as he's doing this, the Andrew Doria, under Captain Biddle, sees an opportunity, gets behind Glasgow, and fires into the stern. It's not quite a rake, but it's a good shot. But we have to remember the Andrew Doria has very small guns and not a lot of them. But with the ships in that position, there's nobody between Howe and uh, Narragansett Bay. So he turns to the northeast, taking the fight in that direction. And he may have, he may have decided either that he wanted to disengage, realizing he's outnumbered, or uh, he may have decided, I'm going to lead him towards uh, the rest of the British water in Narragansett Bay, and we'll continue this fight. Because sea fights go on for hours and hours and hours and even days as, as some of the later fights uh, occur. Alfred's damage proves not to be that bad. So she limps back into the fight. She moves in on the Glasgow's port side. That's the left side. The Antridoria moves in on the starboard side. Uh, so what that means is that the Glasgow was sailing between two American vessels, and this is one of the worst positions you can be in 
because fire uh, enemy vessels are firing into you from both sides. And at the same time, Columbus is finally starting to close the distance from behind. Um, so things don't look real good aboard the Glasgow. And Hal orders his clerk uh, to go down to his cabin, recover the dispatches uh, from Vice Admiral Schuldum and General Hal, stick them in a weighted bag and dump them overboard. This is how bad things look for him. He's afraid uh, that he's going to be taken. The ship is going to be lost to the Americans. Then he gets another lucky break. The wind shifts, and Glasgow breaks off again, running for the northeast, and pours on as much sail and speed as he can get. So he's, he's, he's got a lead as he's trying to disengage from the Americans. Eric, how did this engagement end, and what were the implications of it? Well, in the immediate circumstances, as 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 as, as Howe is pouring on speed for the Northeast, the Alfred and Andrew Doria just can't keep up, um, so they fall behind pretty quickly. Columbus pursues with chasers, but it's just those are these cannon you can fire through the bow, but they're usually limited to two at best. Uh, he's doing very little damage. Uh, at around 6.30 in the morning, uh, as the sun's coming up, Hopkins signals the squadron to uh, end the engagement and move off as a group to the south-southwest. So that's really brings an end to the fight. How races for Narragansett Bay, fire signal guns to tell uh, the British squadron he's coming, and to alert uh, Captain Wallace aboard the Rose that, you know, uh, there's people coming with me. Um, so he gets there about 9.30, Captain Wallace aboard the Rose, gets his little flotilla together and goes to sea and searches for the Americans and just can't find them. Uh, they took a few prizes before uh, the engagement of the Glasgow uh, back on uh, April 5th, and I believe maybe the 4th. Um, and Rose is hoping to recover them, but he just he, he can't. Uh, Wallace is hoping to recover them, and he just can't find them. So that's how that engagement ends. Um, Hopkins eventually uh, puts in, I think, in Connecticut and New London. Um, and uh, the Glasgow is eventually dispatched uh, to Halifax for repairs. She has taken a bit of a uh, a bit of a beating in this battle. Eric, in your research, uh, what have you found about the way this battle is remembered? Well, to the degree it gets remembered, uh, it's really for the poor performance of the Continental Navy. It was just plain embarrassing. Uh, the Americans had seven ships, um, and the the British had one. You know, uh, this should have this should have not been a difficult, uh, shouldn't have even been an even fight. And Glasgow had clearly outfought them. Um, uh, the Congressional Naval Committee for the Continental Congress uh, questions Hopkins and Saltonstall over both the raid on New Providence and then Alfred's poor poor performance in the fight with the Glasgow. The, the, the Alfred is the pride of the fleet at this point. It's the strongest or largest fleet or the largest ship in the American and the Continental Congress, Congress's Navy, put it that way, to distinguish it from all the state navies and the privateers. Um, so they've got concerns about it. Um, Hopkins, uh, Saltonstall is, is sort of, okay, we'll, we'll take the lucky shots. Those happen. We'll dispense with that. Um, but Hopkins, he's got a little bit of a pall over his career uh, from this point on um, by 78. Uh, 1778, he's no longer in command of the Continental Navy. And it, and it really starts to, to 
uh, take a downhill run from uh, the raid on Nassau and the fight with the Glasgow. Uh, Captain Whipple, Abraham Whipple of the Columbus, is court-martialed for cowardice. Uh, since Columbus never really got into the fight, he's acquitted on the cowardice charges, but removed from command on uh, account of, quote, poor judgment. Um, Captain John Hazard, of the Providence, which was probably the fastest sailor in the American fleet and never showed up to the fight, uh, was court-martialed and lost his command. Uh, the only person really to escape censure was Captain Nicholas Biddle of the Andrew Doria. Um, part of the reason... Uh, I suspect was that uh, coming up from the Bahamas, uh, most, most of the sick uh, from the visit to the Caribbean had been saddled on, had been quarantined in the Andrew, in the Andrew Doria. So uh, he's got members of his crew and, and other people uh, on board who are suffering from malaria, smallpox, and, and you name it. Yet he still got into the fight. Um, so it's remembered as an embarrassment to the American Navy. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It, it uh, was the first time the day before was the first time that the Continental Navy or any, any American Navy had, had, had captured a Royal Navy warship just the day before they'd captured the Hawk, uh, which is a small vessel, but nonetheless a Royal Navy vessel. Uh, it's also the first naval battle, uh, the first major battle by the Continental Navy. Um, so it's their first fight, and again, unfortunately, they didn't equip themselves very well. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Uh, well, hopefully it helps uh, put the, uh, uh, the naval war back on the map a little bit. Uh, most popular histories of the U.S. Navy tend to start with the post-war frigates, you know, the Constitution and so on, and they deal with the, the war with the Tripolitanian pirates, France, the quasi-war with France, the War of 1812. Uh, so they, they leave this out entirely. When we think about the Revolutionary War at sea and the Americans at sea, for the longest time, we focused on individuals. And, and when I say we, the number of historians who have written a biography of John Paul Jones is pretty long. Uh, and he gets the name, you know, Father of the American Navy. Uh, now he was justly accorded a lot of a lot of that for his his, his, his daring do and I guess the famous fight uh, on the bottom Richard but um, you know that's it it's biographies uh, and the more recent examinations of, of the war at sea like Sam Willis's uh, the struggle for sea power which uh, made quite a splash a few years ago they really focus on British naval history and their major battles with the French and the Spanish. It, there's no account of the Americans, uh, or very little account of the Americans in his book, in part because the Continental Navy didn't 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 account didn't didn't amount to much in the conventional telling. The good news is that there's some recent attention to American privateers, uh, which were critical in the war. Uh, Eric uh, Dolan had a book. Uh, I think two years ago, called Rebels at Sea, uh, which was a, a very good, thorough look. There are several single volumes that look at the, the privateering war in both the Bay, Chesapeake Bay, off the New Jersey coast. Um, and then most most recently, uh, Christian McBurney's got a book, Dark Voyage Out, uh, also from West Holm, that uh, looks at American privateer interfering with the British slave trade. 
Um, so, uh, you know, the, that, the, that privateering aspect of the war is getting more attention. Um, I hope this article helps us remember there was a Continental Navy. Uh, it was active. Um, and you find that the, that Nassau raid uh, and this battle, in many ways, were the, the, the learning ground. Uh, the proving ground for a lot of future American naval heroes. Uh, that included John Paul Jones, who commanded the gun deck on the Alfred, Nicholas Biddle, commander of the Endoria, uh, and the guy uh, that led me to this 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 fight in the first place, John Peck Rathbun, who went on to a a great career as a as a successful naval captain uh, during much of the war. Eric Sterner, thanks again. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.